you would this morning turn with me again to 1 Timothy. This morning we'll be in chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Last week we looked where the Apostle Paul told us that without controversy or without question, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he gave us six realities that prove that the mystery of godliness is great, it's wonderful, it's amazing. And first of all, God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and then received up into glory. Paul says these are six unquestioned, unquestioned truths that the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, maintain. Now when he says it's without controversy, it's without controversy in the church of the living God. It doesn't mean that these things are not questioned by others. Uh, there are those in this world that do question those realities. They question whether Jesus truly was born of a virgin. I believe that with all that I am. I don't question that one iota. I believe firmly what the Bible says about the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe a virgin conceived as was promised in Isaiah. I believe she was a virgin when that son came forth. The angel came to Joseph and told him to fear not. He was going to put her away privately or privately being a just man. He did not want to make a public spectacle of her. He thought she had been unfaithful. That was the only rational thing to think. And so God comes, an angel tells him to fear not, to take Mary to be his wife. He says, she shall have a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, which means God's anointed. He says, for he shall save his people from their sins. And going on, he lets him know that he would be Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And so here Joseph is informed that he has the privilege to raise on God's behalf, God's eternal son, the Messiah, would be raised in the house of Joseph. The Bible says he was as supposed the son of Joseph, meaning most thought that he was Joseph's son. Joseph raised him as his own. We find, of course, Mary, when, uh, when the Lord tells her, she says, Lord, how shall these things be, seeing I no, not a man. I've, I've never known a man that way. I don't understand how you're going to accomplish this. And he says, you're not to fear. Fear not. He says, for the Holy Ghost shall overshadow thee. And then he lets her know that that holy thing that shall be formed in thee shall be of the Holy Ghost. And so she is told that she is going to bear the Messiah. That was startling news for her. It was also news she didn't quite understand. And so the Lord gives her an explanation. And interestingly, you know who God used uh, to pin the fact that Jesus Christ was born and uh, conceived in a virgin's womb and born uh, of a virgin? It was Luke, who was a medical doctor of his day and time. Of all the men of the New Testament that God could have inspired to write about the virgin conception and birth of Jesus, God uses a medical doctor. Some would say, well, medically this is impossible. Well, with men, uh, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So he says, God was manifest. He came in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ was justified. I mean, he was vindicated by the Spirit of God. We also find, uh, he goes on to say, he was um, seen of angels. Angels peered into his life here on this, in this world. And uh, then he goes on to say, he was priest of the Gentiles. And thank God he was. He was believed on in the world and received up into glory. But then he says, but the Spirit speaketh expressly. So Paul says, I've laid all this out. This is the truth. But also understand this is likewise the truth. The Spirit speaketh expressly. That means clearly. 
This is without question. Just as it's without question that great is the mystery of godliness, what Paul is going to now tell us is likewise just as true. He says, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. And he says, here's what's going to happen. He says, they're going to give heed, they're going to give way to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. See, Jesus has his doctrine. Uh, the Bible lets us know in Hebrews chapter 6, Paul says, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine. You understand that all that Jesus taught, uh, all together combined is the doctrine, the teaching, the unified teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one way, one truth. And so here it's called the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. We often talk about the doctrines of grace. More aptly, we ought to just call it the doctrine of grace. It's all unified. It works together. It's all in uh, an agreement with another. But here he says there are seducing spirits and doctrines, multiple teachings of devils. See, if the devil can't get you one way, he'll try another. He's not limited in his resources, and he's not uh, unwise, uh, according to wicked thinking. He's going to try whatever he can to try to seduce somebody away from the truth. The reality that God was manifest in the flesh, that he was justified in the spirit, that he was seen of angels, preached to the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Satan hates that truth. He hates that reality, and he hates God's people believing it. And so he's going to do all in his power to try to dissuade us from believing that. He's going to seduce us if he can. And he does from time to time. He said he would seduce us with doctrines of devils. He says, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Some of the ones that would teach these things, their past feeling, they don't care that they would seduce you with the uh, doctrines of hell. But also be very careful if we're not uh, alert before long, we ourselves could speak these very same lies and our own conscience be seared. Then he says, here's one of the telltale signs of a doctrine of a devil. <laughs> he says, they're going to forbid to marry and also to command us to abstain from meat. He's letting us know they're going to put rules on us that God never put. Now, obviously, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, it was thought to, to truly be holy you would abstain from marriage. And so there were a lot of religious thoughts that you just would not marry. So he says, one of the things that will be a telltale sign is that you're not to marry. Why would they say that? Because it's in direct, uh, direct contradiction of what God commanded when he says to Adam, it's not good that a man should be alone. So God obviously ordained the marriage relationship. Paul would say in Hebrews 13, he says, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. So here he says, marriage is honorable. Well, we'll find that the doctrines of the devil are going to try to preach the opposite of that. And interestingly enough, one of the most, well, probably the largest organization in this world under the name of Christendom, what do they not allow their ministers to do? They don't allow them to marry. They forbid them that. <laughs> and is that in alignment with the word of God? Obviously not, because the apostle says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. And then he says they're also going to command to abstain from meats. Now, not every doctrine of devils is going to use these specific rules. The point is mainly this. They are going to heap rules upon you that God never did. What's what Paul goes on to say. He says, every creature is good and nothing to be refused. If it be received with thanksgiving, he says, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. Say, so well, how is it sanctified by the word of God? The word of God in the New Testament time has told us it's okay to eat these things. That God has given them for our use. And so God has sanctified some of the very beasts that in the Old Testament the children of Israel were not allowed to eat. You can now eat catfish. You can eat pork. It was a commandment in the Old Testament that we could not. God is saying, you can. Now, I will say, from a dietary point of view, if you would follow what God told the children of Israel not to eat, you probably would be in better health. But here God says, through the word of God, that those things are no longer commanded to us not to partake of. He says, so they've been sanctified by the word of God. Jesus has removed by fulfilling the law those things that we were no, not allowed to eat in the Old Testament day. Then he says it's also sanctified with prayer. In other words, we receive it with thanksgiving. We offer prayer asking God to use it to the blessing of our body. 
Now, I don't want to get into the, all the rules of the doctrines of devils. I want to focus, if the Lord will bless us, on two phrases in the first verse. First of all, I'd like to look at departing from the faith and then go back to the latter times. So here Paul says, The Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. I want to look at that first because I want to spend the most of our time on that phrase, latter times. So Paul says, in the latter times, and I'll say briefly about that, the latter times means from the time of Christ until the second coming of Christ. I am not a dispensationalist. I believe there have been two dispensations of time, the Old Testament day and the New Testament day. I don't believe those are broken up any further than that. Some may say, well, in the Old Testament you had the time before the law. I understand that. But when you look at the two covenants or the two testaments of the Bible, you have the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and you've got the New Covenant and the New Testament. That's it. Uh, you don't break them up further than that. And I do not believe that there is another dispensation of time after the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, then cometh the end when he, shall deliver, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God the Father and having put down... So, see, they get it backwards. <laughs> they say, well, the kingdom's coming down, and then the Lord Jesus Christ will set up here on the earth. No, the Bible says the kingdom's going up. What's going to be put down is all rule, all authority, and all power. That's what's going to happen at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the latter times that Paul here is addressing is the time between the ascension of Jesus, really the first coming of Jesus, and the second coming of Jesus. That's the latter or last times. The Bible calls it the last days, the last time. There's a lot of different ways in which the Bible describes it. But the New Testament era is the last time. There's not going to be an additional time after this time. When Jesus comes the second time, then cometh the end. It's over. <laughs> this world is done when Jesus comes back the second time. He'll have no further use for it, no further need of it. And the doctrine of election alone ought to tell any individual who's a thinking individual that there's not going to be a kingdom set up for a second chance for those who didn't receive it the first time around. Uh, the doctrine of election teaches us that God knew his elect before the foundation of the world. Jesus died for them and he's coming for them at the last day. There'll be no need for a second chance for another group of people because they're either the elect of God and they're in glory or they're not and they're banished forever away from the presence of God in the lake of fire to burn and be punished forever and ever. It's that simple. Now you can try to complicate it further and many do but that's not what the word of God teaches. And when you have to take a lot of Old Testament prophecy and try to convolute New Testament verses to teach something that is so plain and clear. You know what gets me about those who believe in, uh, the pre, in the reign of Jesus at the end of time. The thing that gets me about that is there's a lot of times that the Apostle Paul, Peter, or John, when they spoke very plainly about the second coming of Jesus, why didn't they tell us about that? Why do I have to go to the book of Revelation, a book of analogies and emblems, to try to formulate that doctrine when the apostles in the clear teachings in the epistles to the churches never mention such a thing. Now I believe in the uh, millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three major views about the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, there are those that believe we're past that time. There are those that believe we haven't hit that time. And there's those of us, uh, old Baptists, that believe we are presently in that time. That's where I stand. I believe in the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ right now at the right hand of God. Even in the Old Testament, he was reigning. <laughs> what does it say in Jeremiah? It says in all capital letters, the Lord God uh, omnipotent reigneth. <laughs> he was reigning in the Old Testament day. He's still reigning in the New Testament day while he is here upon the earth. And he's reigning right now. Now, do we see it in his full manifestation? No, but we will. Anyway, so here the apostle says that in the latter times, in the time between Jesus coming and Jesus coming the second time, some shall depart from the faith. Thank God it says some. That's the first thought. It doesn't say all. Not all will depart from the faith. Some will. And it's discouraging when that happens. There are many people throughout my 30-year experience in the church of the living God that I have watched depart from the faith and it is a very disheartening thing to behold it's very sad to watch because I believe it hurts the kingdom of God 
It hurts other children of God. But then you also know that the destruction that they're bringing into their life, it's not just going to hurt them. It's going to have a ripple effect in their household, to their family, to their children, and generations that would follow after them. It's a very sad thing to watch somebody who has known the truth as it is in the Lord Jesus Christ who will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. But you and I must understand that the Spirit has said expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. It's going to happen. And as hard as it is to behold, and as difficult as it is to watch, and as heart-wrenching as it is to uh, see some that you love and have embraced together in the house of God, and here we were together in the household of faith, and to see them give up on the very faith that we thought we were together in, as hard as that is, and it is, the Bible has told us be prepared because it is going to occur. That's why it's important for every child of God to be reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, coming to the house of God to hear the Word on a regular basis proclaimed, and to grow in the knowledge of the truth and also to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of coming to church is not to be seen or just to enjoy an entertaining message. For It is so that you and I would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, so that hopefully the roots that we have in the foundation and the doctrine of Christ would deepen as we live in this world, that they would not uh, lessen, they would not weaken, and that we would not be seduced by the spirits of this world and the doctrines of devils, but that we would be firm in the spirit of the living God and in the teaching, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the Apostle John would tell us uh, how it is that we can find out if a spirit is of God or not. If a spirit comes testifying that Jesus Christ was manifest in the flesh, that the Son of God came into this world, then you know that is a true spirit. If it teaches anything other than that, then you know to just totally ignore what it has to say. It's a false spirit. It's, a, it's, it's someone trying to turn your mind away from the Lord Jesus. So he says, some shall depart from the faith. That's the reality. And as hard as that is, we have to be prepared for it. But also, pray to God, I'm not one of them. Again, I'm so thankful he said, some, not all, shall depart from the faith. Now, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this, I charge thee, therefore, this is verse 1, I charge thee, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. There's another verse that teaches about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ being the last coming of the Lord Jesus. So he says, I charge thee, therefore, this is Paul telling Timothy, I charge thee, therefore, before God. I'm giving this charge, you know, in an ordination we're charging before men, but we're also charging before God. So here Paul says, I'm charging you, Timothy, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Jesus is the judge, who's the judge of the quick, that means the living and he's also the judge of the dead. And when is that judgment going to take place? He says, at his appearing and his kingdom. So that tells me there's one judgment time that's going to take place. The judgment of the living and the judgment of the dead are both going to happen at the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ when his kingdom is fully revealed. So then he goes on to say, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. There again, singular, not doctrines. He says, here's the preacher's job, to preach the word, to be instant in season, out of season. Whether you feel like it, whether you don't feel like it, whether things are good, whether things are bad, whether the church is in a mountaintop, whether it's in a valley, uh, whether uh, you feel uh, bold in the spirit or whether you don't. And he says, it doesn't matter. He says, the preacher's job is to preach the word. He's to be instant ready, in season, out of season. He says, and here's what preaching's supposed to contain. He says, reproof, rebuke, and exhortation. He says, but to do so with all long suffering, all patience. He says, and doctrine. Notice what he goes on to say. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. So here Paul says, this is going to happen. He says, so your job 
And I'm charging you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Timothy, you're to preach the word. And the reason you're to preach the word is because there are going to be some that the time will come for them that they will not endure sound doctrine. And so do your best to preach sound doctrine and hopefully they'll be fortified and they will not be in that camp of people that Paul says some shall depart from the faith. But he also says, understand, the time is going to come for some that they will not endure sound doctrine. But he says, notice this, after their own lust, after their own desire. Doesn't necessarily mean a carnal desire. The Bible talks about those who are ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. Some folks are so enamored about wisdom, knowledge, they can't learn when to stop. When I was 12 years of age and I heard the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that moment I was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, as Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, I didn't need to go any further. Now I've tried to go deeper into the word of God. I've tried to understand more about the doctrine of Christ. But I didn't need to go somewhere else. I didn't need other teachers. I didn't need a new set of principles brought to me. I was satisfied in that moment. And I have been for 30 years now with the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope until my dying breath that I will be satisfied with the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ. That I can say like Jacob did, it is a enough that what I've seen by the Spirit of God and what I've experienced in the house of God is satisfactory to my soul. That even though there may be moments that my mind want to want elsewhere, that my soul would say, stop. What God gave you 30 years ago is sufficient. It was good enough then and it's good enough now and hopefully it will be good enough to take me all the way out of this world. You know, the grace and the faith that you and I believe in, I believe it's good for life and it's certainly good for death. There's a lot of folks that I've preached funerals and they come to me and obviously their minds on death and the hereafter and when they hear the doctrines of grace, you know, they're, they're, it appeals to them in that moment. Why? Because in that moment they see their mortality and they know death's coming and what the old Baptists preach is really the only solution for them in that moment. But then for whatever reason, every one of them that's ever told me they're going to come hear me preach on a regular basis, I ain't seen the first one show up. You know what happened? They left the funeral and their mortality and what they were thinking about that, they've dismissed it. And so the doctrine they believe in, they've uh, picked it back up and carried on. But anyway, here the apostle says we're to preach the word and here's why. He says the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust. You know, the apostle Paul would tell the church of Corinth that one of the problems uh, with our human nature is that we will seek after earthly wisdom. You know, the Greeks, uh, they sought after wisdom, the Jews after signs. Uh, and so when the gospel comes, it was, a, it was foolishness to the Greek, and it was a stumbling block to the Jew. He says, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And here's why I'm going to stick with the King James Bible. I have not seen any modern translation, and I don't even like calling them translations, but I've not seen any modern so-called Bible that will take that verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and let you know that you and I who uh, believe the gospel, <laughs> we're already saved. Unto us which are saved. Every one of them that I've read will say this, which are being saved. In other words, being saved by the gospel. In other words, coming to eternal salvation by hearing the gospel. You and I, we've already heard it. The fact that we believe it is proof that we're already saved. But he says to the Jew, it's a stumbling block. To the Greek, it's foolishness. Why? Because the Greek is seeking after wisdom that the gospel, it doesn't satisfy. Because it takes a spiritual mind to embrace. Now, it's logical. God is a God of logic. God's a God of design. I mean, look at the architecture of this world, the architecture even of the human body. The truth of the gospel is not contrary to true logic. It's not contrary to true wisdom. But it is contrary to human logic and contrary to human wisdom, and God designed it that way on purpose. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ said, Thou hast revealed this unto babes. But he says, You have hidden it from the wise and the prudent, for even so it seemed good in thy sight. God designed it this way on purpose. So anyway, he says, their time will come, they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heat to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. They'll believe in fairy tales. We could get into a lot about what the fairy tales are, maybe another time, but uh, there's a lot of strange things 
that God's people embrace as truth, which is so far from the truth, it's astounding that they would ever embrace it. And some who have been under the sound of the truth, believe the truth, embrace the truth, and then leave it for fables and fairy tales. Anyway, again, the apostle says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some should depart from the faith. It happened in the days of the Lord Jesus. Think about John 6. John 6, there was a big crowd of people. Probably one of the, one of, one of the biggest religious gatherings in all the New Testament. 5,000 men besides women and children. They're fed, provided for, for the Lord by the Lord Jesus, but then Jesus starts preaching about his doctrine. He starts applying some of the things they've just witnessed with their eyes to the truth of who he is. And they didn't like what they heard. So at the end of that preaching, at the end of that sermon, what happened? Jesus looks, and there's only 12. The crowd goes from 5,000 men besides women and children. No telling how big that crowd was. You know, it could have been 20, 25,000. I don't know, but either way, nobody was left except the 12. So Jesus said, will you also go away? What's he say? Are you also going to deny the reality of what I've taught? He says, will you also go away? And what did uh, Peter say? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For thou hast the words of eternal life. He says, there's nowhere else that we could go. There's no other one that's going to preach to us the reality of our life with you in glory. So, of course, we're not going to go away. But many of them did. Uh, Peter, thank God, uh, was not willing to turn away. But many that day did. Now, look even in the life of the Apostle Paul. In Paul's own life, he talked about a man by the name of Demas. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, he's forsaken me. Why? He says, having loved this present world. What does that mean? Well, he said, he loves this world more than the world to come. And so he departed from the faith because of his love for this present world. That happens sometimes. Some some people depart the faith because they've been seduced by devilish spirits to think that the, uh, the pleasures of this world, the carnality of this world will satisfy them. And so there's a lot of folks that are no longer members of the old Baptist church simply because of the pleasures of this world. Now the Bible tells us very clear in 1 John chapter 2 that we're love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. We're not supposed to love those things. But here Demas, he said, he forsook me. What Paul's indicating, he's forsaken the truth because he loved this present world. Now that doesn't mean that he didn't love the world to come. It just means he loved this world primarily. And he loved this world more than the world to come enough that he would leave the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he says, the Spirit speaketh expressly. This is clear, that some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines and devils. But he says, the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times. In the latter times, this shall occur. The Apostle Peter speaks about the latter times in 2 Peter chapter 2. 3 verse 3 he says knowing this first that there shall come in the last day scoffers so here's one of the ways you can know whether or not we're in the last days Peter says knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and notice what they say and saying where is the promise of his coming For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Just a few years ago, a minister pointed out to me, notice these are creationists that are saying this. It's creationists that are saying, where is the promise of his coming? That tells me there's some people that believe in the creation that do not believe in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a horrible place to be. As Paul would tell, if we only have hope in Christ... If there was no, all we had was an earthly hope in Christ, but not a heavenly hope, not a hope which is the anchor of the soul, which anchor is in heaven where Jesus the forerunner has gone before us. If we didn't have that anchor, if we didn't have the reality that Jesus Christ has gone into glory in our behalf and now is there as our intercessor and is going to come back as the one to take us home to be with him, as Paul would say in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. Uh, that when Jesus comes the second time, it's without sin unto salvation, meaning the full reality and manifestation of salvation is going to happen at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I didn't believe that, and I just, or there was no heavenly reality of that, but just it was a fable or fantasy, then I would be of all men most miserable. 
But the hope that I have in Christ is not based on earthly things. But the fables that many men and women would believe, they're based on earthly and hellish things. No wonder they can become so discouraged and uh, tossed to and fro, as Paul would say, with every wind of doctrine. It is good for the child of God to be established with grace. Anyway, the apostle Peter here says, knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust, and here is what they say, where is the promise of his coming? Well, I can show them the promise of his coming all over the Old and New Testament. I love there in John chapter 12, the Lord Jesus Christ uh, has come into Jerusalem triumphant. And those folks have laid down their palm branches and said, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And then it says there in John chapter 12, quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion, thy king cometh. Uh, that's still true for you and I. There's no reason for you and I to be afraid of the events and circumstances in this world because our king is coming. It's been promised to us uh, from the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament. Our king is coming. Now, what they're saying is, where's he at? If he keeps saying that he's coming and you believe he's coming, well, where is he? Well, the Apostle Peter's going to let them know later in that chapter there's a reason that he hasn't come back. He says he will not come back until every one of his has been born of the Spirit of God. He says the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us. We're not willing that any should perish. This is verse 9. But that all, now we understand there, all of his elect shall come to repentance. Now there's some that believe repentance there means they've turned from idolatry, unbelief. It's, they're talking about regeneration. Just to put it simply, he's talking about a turn from death and sin to a life in Jesus. When the last heir of promise is born of the Spirit of God, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ will come. That's what he's waiting for. John 3, what did he tell Nicodemus? Except a man be born again, he cannot see and he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So the new birth is a prerequisite for heaven. Now, thankfully, that prerequisite is not met by you or I. It's met by the Spirit of God using the voice of the Son of God. That's how we're born of the Spirit. So here the Apostle Peter says, the Lord is not slack. That means the Lord is not slow, as some men count slackness or slowness. He says, but God is long-suffering. Notice what he says, to usward. Aren't you glad? I mean, what if he had come before you were born? You would have missed out on it. So the Lord is not just slack, not caring, just uh, delaying his coming to be harsh, to be unkind, to say, well, I'd like them to have to dangle around in humanity for a while longer just for my entertainment. That is not what God is doing. God is waiting for the last child of grace to be born of the Spirit of God. And I promise you when that happens, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4 is going to be reality. We're going to hear the trump of God. We're going to hear the final trump. We're going to hear the voice of the archangel. And we're going to hear the voice of God. And all of a sudden, there's going to be a shout. And we're going to see the clouds peeled back by the glorious coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord Jesus and all the disembodied spirits and all the angelic hosts uh, descend together with the Lord Jesus Christ in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says, it's going to happen very quickly, very fast. All that shall transpire. So here the uh, scoffers say, the ones who uh, deny uh, that we are in the last days. Uh, here the Apostle Peter says, here's one of the ways you know you're in the last days. Is that they will say to you, where is the promise of his coming? How many people in this world you would meet would deny the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Many of them denied he came the first time. So why would they embrace the truth that he's coming a second time? We turn for just a moment to the book of Jude. In the book of Jude... It says that in the last time, verse 18, he said, They told you there should be mockers in the last time who should walk after their own ungodly lusts. He said, These be they who separate themselves sensual, having not the Spirit. He says, But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. So here he says, here's one of the ways that we know that we're in the last time. He says, there are those who are going to mock. Now there's been individuals mocking Christianity since the apostolic times. 
So that tells me we've been in the last time since Jesus was in this world the first time. They mocked him. What happened at the cross? There was mockery going on all over the place. Why did they unclothe him? Because they put on him a scarlet robe. They took a reed and put it in his hand as a scepter. They took a crown of thorns and placed it. What were they doing? They were making a mockery uh, that he was the, uh, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, whether or not they made mockery of it did not deny the reality that he is the king of kings. And I love what Herod did. In three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, what did he nail upon the cross above the Lord Jesus Christ? This is the king of the Jews. The Jews hated it. They wanted Pilate to take that sign down. And I love what Pilate said. What I have written, I have written. <laughs> I think there was something within Pilate that understood the truth in those three languages nailed above the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. The Bible says he's the only high potentates. So here, again, there's been mockers since his day. They mocked him at the cross. I'm sure there was mockery going on in the three days and three nights he was in the tomb. Can you imagine what those Jews thought of the disciples? You thought he was the son of God. But there he is, dead in a tomb. But you know, there was some doubt among those Pharisees because they went to Pilate. They said, you know, he said that after three days and three nights. So we need to make that place sure. So they sealed that tomb and they put guards there. Now I don't know if the, the Pharisees believed he might come back to life or the disciples would come. Now as you know, when the Lord Jesus was gone from the tomb, what did those Pharisees tell those soldiers? You say that while you slept, somebody come and stole his body away. Well number one, if you were sleeping, how do you know somebody come and stole his body? Number two, if a soldier went to sleep on the job, you know what happened to him? He's put to death. But you know what those Pharisees said? You say this, and we will pay even to the governor. We'll bribe whoever we have to to make sure this story sticks and you're not, uh, you're not in, uh, in trouble for telling the story. Anyway, even in the days of Jesus, there's been mockery of Jesus and mockery of the truth. And there's mockery of it today. There's a reason many say that we are now a post-Christian nation. I know some of us don't like hearing that. It's the reality. If you look at polls, and I don't I mean, it's hard to trust polls, whether you're talking about polls, who's going to win uh, an election, or who is a believer or not. I don't know. But when it gets to the point that less than 50% now claim to be Christian, less than 20% now attend regularly a religious service, we have to embrace the reality this is now a post-Christian nation. We're in a post-Christian time. The glory that we saw at the founding of this nation up until probably the 1960s and 70s, that time is gone. We're living in a very dark hour. It's just the reality. And I hope we're very near the last time of the last time. <laughs> That's my great hope. But here the apostle, uh, here Jude, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, here's one of the ways you know that you're in the last time. He says, there's going to be mockers who walk after their ungodly lusts. And he says, these are they that separate themselves. They're sensual. That means they only go after feeling. They don't care about thought. They don't care about what God is taught. All they care about is what feels good to them in the moment. Does that not sound like the society in which we live? It certainly is. He said they're sensual. They have not the spirit capital S. He says, but ye beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now understand that Jude is not here saying that if you don't do this that you're going to be eternally lost. That you're eternally removed from the love of God. That would contradict what Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans when he says there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he saying? He's saying keep yourself daily while you're on this side of heaven in the love of God. Keep yourself in a way of discipleship in a way that honors the Lord that you feel the love of God and that you feel love toward God. It says, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. You know what he's saying? Looking for the last time of the last time. Looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to come back. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says this. This know also, that in the last days, perilous times shall come. That means dangerous. So this know also, 
that in the last days perilous, dangerous times shall come. There's a reason that we lock the doors of this building at 11 o'clock. It's a dangerous time. There's a reason that most places I go, I'm armed. <laughs> it's not just because I enjoy carrying a heavy piece of metal on my back. That's not the reason. I just know that I'm in a dangerous time. When you don't know whether walking into Walmart could get you shot and killed, when you don't know if going into a movie theater could get you shot and killed, when you don't know whether or not going to the house of God to worship could get you shot and killed, that's a dangerous time. I mean, I don't know how else to paint it. I understand that some say, well, when you go to the book of Revelation and you start seeing the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's the day. That's not what he's talking He's just letting us know that men are going to be out of control. And notice what he goes on to say. He says, this though also in the last days, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's the chief reason that the last days are going to be dangerous times, because men love themselves. Why do you think people are robbed? Because men love themselves more than they love other people. If I love other people more than myself, I would never rob from them. I'd never steal from them. He says, in the last days, perilous times shall come because men shall be lovers of their own selves. They'll be covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. <laughs> um, he says, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. I mean, just go through the list of what here the Apostle Paul says it's going to be like before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that again. He says, men shall be lovers of their own selves because they'll be covetous. How many people are going without in this world when there's mass wealth in this world? There oughtn't be a hungry person in the world today given the amount of wealth that we have in the world today. The reason that there's hunger going on in this world is because there's mass covetousness in this world. And why is there covetousness? Because men love themselves more than they love fellow man. He says men should be lovers of their own selves and because of that they'll be covetous There'll be boasters. Don't we hear a lot of that today? A lot of boasting going on. He says, not only that, they'll be proud. They'll be blasphemers. That means they will speak evil of good things. He says, they'll be disobedient to parents. Well, when you love yourself more than you love your parents, what's going to happen? You're going to be disobedient to them so you can be obedient to your own desires. He says, not only that, be unthankful. I tell you what, if there's not a mark of the last days that we can look at, so think about unthankful. How many people just expect things to be handed them, and so when it is, no thank you to the person giving it or to the Lord who gave the ability to that person to give it. Unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. Understand that there's more than one love. There's a godly love, but there's also a natural affection. Any mother or father ought to have a natural affection for their children, whether they're born of the Spirit of God or not. God put it in our nature to have an affection for our own families. That's just natural. But he says, but the day will come when they will be without natural affection. How do you think it is that a mother goes to an abortion clinic? Because she's without natural affection. She doesn't even possess just what God gave in nature a mother to have towards her child. And a father to go along with that. Or a father to just simply walk out on his family. Maybe with a stay-at-home mom that's never worked the first day of life. And he's just tired of the responsibility of taking care of them. What's happening? He's uh, a man that loves himself more than his own family. And he's without natural affection. A man that will not uh, work and provide for his own, the Bible says, is worse than an infidel. So here there can be a mother and a father that's without natural affection, children without natural affection. We hear of children doing things to their parents that's unthinkable. He says, truce breakers, that means breaking our word. False accusers, incontinent, without control of ourselves. Fierce, despisers of those that are good. Why do you think people walk into a church house and just start shooting? Because they hate or despise those that are good. He said they'll be traitors. Heady, that means built up in themselves. High-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. And we need to be very careful because even we who are trying to serve the Lord could very easily fall into that one. We could very easily become a lover of a pleasure, of our vacation time, our family time, all that more than we love God. And it's a balance. I'm not saying it's wrong to enjoy things that God has given us in this world but it should never take the place of our love for the Lord. 
So he says here you have people who are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, he says, from such turn away. So again, the apostle says, the spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. Paul lets us know that. Peter confirms it when he says they shall come questioning the promise of his coming. Jude says they will come, they will mock in the last time. We find that even uh, John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 2 would say beginning in verse 15, love not the world. I've already quoted part of this. He says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. <laughs> Pretty black and white language, isn't it there, John? <laughs> he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in this world. If any man, that means if you love the world more than you love God, you're allowing the love of the world to outshine any love of God that's within you. That's what Demas did. He loved this world more than he loved God at that moment. Then he says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And then he goes on to say, little children, first he says, the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Then he says, little children, it is the last time. Thank God it is. It is the last time. He says, and here's how you know it. He says, you have heard that Antichrist shall come. Even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Say, so, well, that all is kind of dark right there. Well, no, there's some light in there too. <laughs> yes, he said, you heard Antichrist will come. He says, and many Antichrists are in the world. What's he say? It is the last time. It's the last time. We know we're there. Say, so, well, Brother Chris, does that mean it's going to happen today? I don't know when it's going to happen. I hope to God it happens while I'm still uh, breathing and living on this earth. May happen today, may happen a year from now, 50 years from now, 500 years from now. I don't know. What I do know is we are in the last time. I take this confidence, there's not another time after this time. That when Jesus comes back, once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then cometh the end. There'll be no more of this world when he comes back. He will burn it up. When you read right there in 2 Peter chapter 3 when they said, where's the promise of his coming? He goes on and lets us know that this world is being reserved under judgment. He says, and it's going to pass away with a noise, a great noise, and with fervent heat. Now, he first talks about the first world being destroyed, meaning the world in Noah's day, how it was destroyed. Remember what they say, where's the promise uh, of his coming? He says, for the world continues as it has since the fathers. In other words, the world's been going like this for eons, and it's just going to keep on going this way for eons. No, he says, this they are willingly ignorant of. You know, there's one thing about being ignorant, another thing altogether about willful ignorance. He says this, they're willingly ignorant of, that the world that then was, standing out of the water and in the water, was destroyed by water. So there was a world that then was, that is no longer. The world that then was, was totally different from the world upon which you and I stand today. That pre-flood world was a completely different environment than what the world is after uh, Noah's flood. So the world has not continued as it has from the creation till now. God destroyed that world. Why? Because the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And it came up before God. And God came down and saw that. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah and his wife and his three th sons and their wives were spared. But God did not spare the rest of the world. He destroyed it. And if he destroyed that world, <laughs> I guarantee you he'll destroy this one as well. He's holding back. He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all, all of his elect family should come to repentance. And then the same God that destroyed the world that then was is going to destroy this world that now is. It's being reserved. But the day's coming that it shall melt with fervent heat and pass away with a great noise. It's going to be something to behold. I don't know if we're going to be allowed to observe it or not. I really won't care because I'll have my eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. If he allows us to look back at it, that's fine. If he don't, I won't care about that either. I just know this. I'm grateful to know that I'm in the last time and that there's no future time upon this earth that the children of God are going to have to contend with. 
So while it's dark that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, thank God this is the latter time. That there's not a time beyond this one. That when Jesus comes back, then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God the Father, when he shall have put down all rule, all authority, all power, for he must reign. It says there, he must reign till he have put down all. He says he must reign until he destroys all enemies. And he says, and the last enemy which shall be destroyed is death. So when Jesus comes, he'll destroy death. He must reign till then. And after he destroys death, you know what he says? He's going to go back to the Father. And in God shall be all in all. Jesus is reigning right now, waiting till all of his enemies are subdued. And when the last enemy, which is death, which is going to happen at the resurrection at the last day, which according to John chapter 5, verse 28, the moment is coming, when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. The same voice that in verse 25 says, they that hear the voice of the Son of God shall live. He also lets us know the same, uh, the same voice that speaks to us eternal life and regeneration is going to speak and our bodies shall come forth. Now he says, marvel not this, he says, the hour is coming. When all that are in the graves shall hear his voice, and when they hear his voice, they shall rise, they that have done good to the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil or wicked to the resurrection of damnation. All that happens in the same moment. If Jesus takes care of the righteous and the wicked in one coming, why is there any point to any kingdom being established on this world for any purpose? There's not, because he's already settled justice. He's already taken care of justice against the children of God when he himself was our surety hanging upon the cross of Calvary and satisfied forever the wrath of God against every elect child of God. That's already been taken care of, and he's going to hand out eternal justice against the wicked when he comes back the last day and raises their bodies from the grave, their souls be brought up from hell, uh, put back within their bodies, and then be banished forever with the devil and all his angels to the lake of fire to burn forever and ever. There's no more need for Jesus to come after that. Why? Because his reign is over. At that point, all is subdued. And then God the Father will be all in all. All focus, all praise, all honor. Jesus Christ and all of his office work will have settled and satisfied all things needful. There'll be no further need for this world. No need for some future kingdom. No need for him to sit on some throne here upon this earth. He's established in his kingdom right now. He's sitting on the throne of his father David right now. He is presently ruling and reigning the affairs of men right now. And there's coming a day that will be the last time, the last day of the last times and then us will all be wrapped up and we'll all be carried to be with him in glory. And time will be no more. We won't worry about time anymore. We won't worry about latter days anymore because we'll just live in the eternal day in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless you.